This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Been a hot minute since we've done a dad joke, so here it goes. How do you follow Will Smith in the snow? You follow the fresh prince. Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. It is Ben Cloy. This is episode 131 of Military Veteran Dad with John Troxel. Before we get into John's episode that I've been talking about all of last week, I want to talk about something that my kids are right at that age that really make it difficult to keep everything together, especially if you are those parents that add electronics into your kid's life. I am of the mindset that electronics aren't going to go away. I want my kids to understand that these are tools, not just something that can rot your brain. So we always try to create conversations, create boundaries, and have these different ways for electronics to play a role within our kids' life. But they have so many different things in there. they got so many of the creeps on the internet. It is next to impossible, it felt, to try to have any control over this until I found Bark. Bark is this internet monitoring tool that allows you, the parent, to watch your text messages or look at your kid's search history. If their kids are maybe in the teenagers, whether they're searching something on Google, you'll get an alert if there's different offensive words. You'll also get monitoring of any conversations they'll have on their social media accounts. It also allows YouTube to be restricted. You can restrict all these different things right within your portal. It's kind of like adding a special VPN to your kid's phone to be able to just look at what's going in and out of your phone to really help your kids understand where you need to maybe have a conversation about something they've just discovered or someone said, or when there's bullying going on and maybe you don't know about it and maybe your kids aren't necessarily talking about it in a healthy way, this will give you that alert right on your phone saying, hey, something happened on your kid's device, tells you exactly what happened. Well, I have just partnered with Bark to help bring you 10% off on their products and can't hands down recommend them enough. I've been using them for the last year. Made sense. So if you want to go ahead and check out and get 10% off on Bark to help get additional information from what your kids are doing on their devices, go ahead and over to militaryveterandad.com forward slash Bark, and that will get you 10%. Let's get started with today's episode. Today, we have John Wayne Troxel, who is a retired United States Army senior non-commissioned officer who served as the third senior enlisted advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staffs during the Trump administration, this position made him the most senior enlisted member of all the United States Armed Forces. He enlisted in the Army way back in September of 1982, served 37 years in the military, five combat tours, including 
parachute jumping in Operation Just Cause in Panama, Operation Desert Shield in Desert Storm, two tours in Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. This episode does not disappoint. It takes us into all the different places that you would expect someone who's at the most senior enlisted view of the military and his ability to just articulate a lot of different points that whether you are wherever you are in the military, whether with rank structure, you might not really understand. Now, all of these views represent John Troxell's views, not the DODs. So these are his personal opinions based on his experience in 37 years. But man, this episode doesn't disappoint. And I know it's going to help give you the courage that you need to do some hard things. There is a story that is going to happen in this episode. And essentially, if this man can do what he had to do, which is the longest walk, which is not to spoil it, but he had to walk into the Secretary of Defense Mattis's office and drop some really hard news. If he can do that walk, you can do the walk as well. So without further ado, let's get started with John Wayne Traxel. And if you would like to hear my big takeaway, hang on to the other side. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Ben. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, brother. You are an this is going to be an awesome episode, but this isn't just a regular episode. We are talking to the senior listed, former senior listed advisor to the Joint, Chief, Joint Chiefs. And what your perspective is on pretty much the whole thing, because you were essentially right there at the top. You had your you had the perspective of being stationed in the military all around the world. And then you brought that pretty much right to Washington, D.C. You were a stone throw away from the president. I'm just really excited to talk about a whole bunch of different things. But before we hit record, we were talking about what was recently going on as the time of this recording is the fall of Afghanistan. And I want to go there quickly and well, maybe quickly and we'll park here for a little bit and we'll see what happens. But I want to kind of, what did it mean for you as a veteran serving in Afghanistan at all different levels and being participated in all the different levels? How have you reconciled what just happened with the fall of Afghanistan? Yeah, I'm extremely disappointed now. First and foremost, I am not going to speak on behalf of the DOD. Um, I, this is John's opinion, but I served as the senior enlisted leader of all combat forces there in 2011 and 12 as the International Security Assistance Force Joint Command Command Senior Enlisted Leader. And all the regional commands reported to us. And that year in 2011 was when we initially, the surge just finished in Afghanistan, and we initially started this orderly, disciplined, protracted withdrawal, where we went from 130,000 to about 120,000 troops. And over the past 10 years, we have had this disciplined approach, and it was orderly uh, and protracted to go from 120,000 to the first year I was the SEAC, we were down to 15,000. And then the next year, we got down to 8,400 to where when I left the position, uh, we eventually got to 2,500. And through, so it took us 10 years to go from 130,000 to 2,500. But through that time, not only did we continue to build the Afghan army, we built an Afghan air force. The Afghan government was continuing to grow and develop. And we were still, you know, having challenges with corruption, but getting after it. and. The Afghan uh, society, the literacy rate was climbing, steadily climbing, especially for women. Uh, women's rights were upheld very well and things were going well. And we were disrupting uh, and neutralizing 
terrorist kind of threats in that country and their ability to export them. Plus, we were continuing to deny and disrupt Taliban and degrading their ability to get after it. And so I, the analogy I use through all of this to where we're at now is in 2011, we were on our, well, in 2001, I'm sorry, we were on our own one yard line. We took the ball and between us, our multinational partners and the Afghans, we started moving the ball down the field. You know, we crossed midfield and I feel like we got into the red zone prepared to go in and score the winning touchdown and win the game. And we were ordered to get off the field and with us and our Afghan partners followed us and the referee blew the whistle. The Taliban picked up the ball and went some 80, 90 yards in the other direction with an unopposed touchdown. And that's where we're at now. And I'm very, very disappointed in the decision the president made because I felt not only were we having an impact and really, Ben, we have to look at it. Was it still a war? 2,500 Americans there had not had a U.S. killed in action in a year and a half. We had a small counterterrorism force that was continuing to put pressure on the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, plus the rest of the force, the general purpose troops that were there were not fighting. They were building partner secure uh, uh, security forces, the Afghan security forces, they were advising and assisting them. And so this is kind of what uh, we were doing in other places like Somalia, in Libya, in Niger, and places like that. And as we talked beforehand, you know, we've been in Korea now for 68 years. Well, 71 years, really, when from the beginning of the fight, We've been in Germany since World War II. We've been in these countries where we've had a presence, and that presence is there as a deterrent. And so my concern now is, now that the Taliban is in power, not only am I concerned about the American citizens that are the thousands that are around the country and our Afghan partners that helped us over the last 20 years, and then any third country nationals, all of them may be at risk, but also the ability now for the Taliban to allow al-Qaeda and ISIS training camps to grow and develop and to recruit fighters into these insidious organizations and then give them the time and space, resources, and ability to export spectacular attacks back into Western Europe and ultimately into the United States. I'm very concerned about that now. And it that feeling right there, kind of the, the rubber band back to, and it's, also, anybody that joined after 9-11, the emotion of why you joined was almost like a time machine back to like you go back and, and you could go back and tell yourself, don't join. It's 20 years. It's not going to be worth it. And because a lot of those 20 years are getting out after doing 20 years. So it's this I ironic part with the military service ending, like their beginning, the ending and knowing that like it was all part of something that just kind of unraveled like that feeling has been really hard in my stomach to kind of wrestle with. I agree with you. And my message to all veterans, whether you served in Afghanistan, whether you served in Iraq, I know you have extensive time in the Pacific uh, being a Marine and everything, regardless of who you are as a veteran, be proud of your service because everywhere around the world, we made a huge impact and we continue to make a huge impact. When I see 
news agencies or I see professional athletes or movie stars criticize the United States and say we have fallen in the, the global eye in terms of being the most trusted partner. Military-wise, we are the number one partner of choice for global peace and security. And nations look to us for assistance to make sure that China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, or terrorists do not impinge on their sovereignty. So to all the veterans out there, including yourself, Ben, we should be proud of who we are and what we've done. We've served our country proudly, and we cannot allow an executive decision at the administration level that, in my opinion, was was disorderly, um, it was undisciplined, and it was precipitous. We can't allow a decision like that to say it was all for naught. I, I just cannot buy that, and no veteran should buy that, because we made a huge impact in that country as we do around the world in all the countries we serve in. And there was another thought that I'm kind of just diving into, but it's helped me a little bit to understand that while this feels like the end, anybody that's old enough to understand time doesn't work that way, that this is just a chapter. And I was kind of reflecting on maybe when has this repeated itself? There was recently with Saigon, they showed the different pictures with the helicopter taken off, but I was actually going back all the way, reminded me of the war of 1812. And I can't imagine as an American living in that area, maybe even fought in the Revolutionary War, seeing the, wash, the White House on, 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 on fire, the whole, literally your symbol, symbol for everything that you tried to create 30 years ago, on fire, burning down, like, and almost thinking it's over. Like, we, we had the first win, but the, the England had the last laugh. They, there had to have been like this despair. And if you look, I mean, we came back, it wasn't the end. But then there were still many more struggles. You had the Civil War many years later. Like, it wasn't the ending, but it was just a chapter, and we got through it. And one that was, I would say, that would be much more heart-wrenching for someone that fought the Revolutionary War and to see their new symbol of freedom burning down by the people they fought against, that feeling really had to suck. And so I've been almost kind of lessening my feeling now with the, with the gratitude that, like, well, this does suck. We've been here before, and this is just how it is right now. And with the American idea that was still created, which still has tested through it, got through the War of 1812. We'll get through this in some weird way that we just can't yet know of how it's going to go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you, you know. And, you know, and recently, um, I've been, you know, people message me all the time. Um, not all of it is good messages and everything. Some people imagine. will criticize, you know, when you served in a position like I did, and you're opinionated now, like I am, you're going to get critics out there. And, you know, we live in America, people are entitled to their opinion. But, you know, I had some folks say, hey, look, Afghanistan, the president made a decision, get over it. And I said, and then I started studying kind of the people that were continuing to tell me these kind of things. And generally, it's the people that have never had to face the business end of a rifle held by an enemy fighter or they never had to kill an enemy fighter in defense of freedom, or worse yet, they haven't had to suffer through where a beautiful human being, their battle buddy was next to them. And one explosion turned that beautiful human being, that beautiful human body into a pile of flesh, hair, and camouflage material. So they don't have skin in the game, Ben. 
And so they want to pass judgment on a political decision based on that they voted for the president. So they don't want to be seen as I'm wrong because I visit, voted for this president. And he made this piss poor decision. So they want to attack the people who have vivid memories, not only of Afghanistan and Iraq, but serving their nation. And, you know, excuse my language, you know, I know this, I know this is the, the veteran dad program, you know, but excuse my language, those kinds of people that never had skin in the game need a healthy cup of shut the fuck up, man. Sorry, but, you know, I stole that phrase from my former boss, a Marine, Joe Dunford, you know, and, uh, and it's been passed and, uh, down by many good Marines, <laughs> yeah, including Jim Mattis, one of my other bosses, you know? So, um, so when I hear people like that and to my message to veterans, when people say, get over it. Okay. Yeah. We're life goes on and we're going to continue to go on. Um, but we're not going to forget who we are and what we've done and the service that we, we gave to our nation. And we should be proud of that. And even though an executive decision gone bad uh, is heavy on our minds, it should not cloud the great work we have done and we continue to do around the world. Yeah. And that almost I was recently watching the movie uh, Midway. And that reminds yeah. me of the intelligence failure at Pearl Harbor, where people in Washington thought they knew better. People in Washington thought they were they could play maybe a game a little bit longer and that delay or lack of confidence and the human life that Pearl Harbor was, I mean, yeah. that's what I've, I've been really kind of like sitting with. Like, these aren't the first times we've been here. This isn't the first person that's feeling this. And that kind of shared sacrifice is what we all know within the military is that we aren't just one person being miserable. We're all being miserable at the same time. That's how you get through misery. And that's kind of yeah. like the thread of the military service in itself. By serving the country, you're not just sharing this moment. You're actually sharing a little bit of what every person that's laid down their life for us. And it's that shared sacrifice that we all kind of bear when we say yes to put on that uniform. And that's been helping me a little bit kind of know that this that we'll be okay through this, no matter how it goes, no matter what happens, that this is just part of that saying yes and sharing the the burden of, of wearing the cloth of your country. Oh, yeah. And you know, one thing that I will always take pride in, especially when I was the SEAC, is traveling around the country. You know, I would get out to Okinawa or, or on an exercise that I would see a mew out doing stuff and and they were partnering with another nation, and uh, it was in Thailand. And here's this Marine Infantry Company partnering with this Thai Infantry Company, and and a uh, Marine squad leader is out there doing pre-combat inspections on his troops, and the Thai squad leader is watching what he's doing, and he immediately turns and starts doing what the um, the Marine, the American squad leader, is doing. I saw this in Afghanistan with soldiers and Marines. You know, the Afghans would look at what they were doing as, as small unit leaders, and they were mimicking that. Same in Iraq, same in Africa, wherever I've gone around the world, South America, everywhere, Asia, people look to our leaders at the tactical level. Other militaries look and say, that's what we want our military to look like. So let's mimic what they're doing. And so that's the, when the, the what gives me the most pride is are trusted, trained, and empowered non-commissioned officer and petty officer corps in our military that gets after that every day. And in my opinion, Ben, that is our greatest strategic advantage, uh, our competitive advantage over any threat around the world 
is our people, but most specifically our non-commissioned officers and petty officers. Would the officers you serve with say you're biased? <laughs> uh, the good ones will say no because they understand, they understand. Officers, officers focus on providing vision, intent, and uh, you know the execution is done by non-commissioned officers and petty officers. There are some officers out there who aren't secure in their own skin that when I talk like that will say, oh, he's bashing officers. But I will tell you, the, the, the reason our military is great is officers develop orders, they issue orders, they issue vision and intent, and they allow for non-commissioned officers to execute discipline initiative within that intent, apply agile and adaptive thinking and practices, and accomplish the mission in the fashion that they think is best for their squad, their fire team, their platoon, or whatever, and able to do and accomplish the mission without being micromanaged by the officers. That's why we are the greatest military on the planet. Uh, and nothing against our partners and allies, but none does it better than us. There was another thought that popped in my head that I've also kind of been uh, sitting with when I was thinking back to the War of 1812. Never underestimate what a small group of people can do that believe in freedom. If you think of just a small group of people that wrote the Declaration of Independence, the people that wrote the Constitution, they were just a small group of people that had this flamelet of freedom that was put between them, between an ocean, between England and us, and it allowed to yeah. grow. And no matter, like, we judge it by what's happening now, but think of how many Afghanistans still have that flame lit and what a yeah. small group of people that now realize it's on them if they're going to change. They have to, like, accept that ownership that wasn't kind of there before or that was kind of, like, what portrayed as the reason why it collapses because they didn't want to fight. But this freedom is still there. And that small group of feeling that, the Americans left and gave that feeling of freedom is something that is still resonating ever since the declaration of independence. I often say like for me, the 4th of July isn't just about fireworks and our independence and our birth. It's really about when a small group of people define freedom in a way that revolutionized the world. And that is still what was left in Afghanistan, no matter what the Taliban do, you can't take yeah. a spark of individual freedom that we've left and I also like that you went towards the training of different military forces, because a few months ago, I had this analogy of how the Marine Corps operating ethos is actually the perfect ethos that Marines should operate on on an individual basis. But we never have it carried down. And the Marine Corps literally travels around the world, exposing our vulnerabilities, training with our allies at the edge of what scares the crap out of us, which now that I've gone through my own growth journey is how life's supposed to work. But most veterans yes. do not have that same idea. We pull back from that edge. We don't acknowledge our vulnerabilities. But literally, when I had this epiphany, I'm like, literally, the Marine Corps travels around all these different countries telling and showing where we're weak so that way we can overcome it and create it as a strength. Like, if that was not how a veteran should operate, I don't know what is. Because, like, that's like the opposite of what veterans kind of go default into, which leads us down this path to the suicide rate. And I'm wondering, did you see similar things? Like, have you connected like that, like operating on the edge, like ethos where the Marine Corps operates and how like a veteran should be operating on the other side? Absolutely. So to finish off your first point about Afghanistan. So the Panjshir province has historically been an era, you know, where um, it's been a graveyard of empires. Uh, so the Northern Alliance under Ahmed Shah Massoud during the 80s and the, the Soviet uh, intervention, uh, they turned back seven Soviet 
armored attacks in the valley. These lightly armed Mujahideen, obviously with U.S. Uh, Stinger missile assistance, but seven times they held the, the Soviets off. And then for five years, they, you know, stopped every Taliban attack up there. So now you see in the Panjshir Valley, Ahmed Shah Massoud's son is now leading what is the new Northern Alliance. And they're fighting in Panjshir. They just retook three districts to the north of Panjshir in Baglan province. So to your point, there are Afghans that are, that they are so focused on freedom that they are fighting back right now. Again, in some cases with hundreds of districts in Afghanistan, that might be, as General Schwarzkopf would say, as significant as a mosquito on an elephant. But the bottom line is they're fighting back. Second of all, the key thing I see with veterans um, from their military service is they lose purpose um, when they're, they're transitioning. And in post-military service, they lack purpose. And here's why I think some of that happens. Our transition programs have to get a lot better in educating transitioning service members, whether it's someone after one tour or someone retiring like me after 38 years. And then we have to continue to educate on what the Veterans Administration is there for. Ben, let me give you some statistics here. There's 18 million veterans in the world like you and me. Nine million are enrolled in VA healthcare, only 50%. Six million actively use all of their VA benefits. And when you look at that 22 a day that commits suicide, less than half are enrolled in some kind of VA healthcare program that will give them behavioral health and assistance. And it's free, okay? And, uh, and, and are fully taken advantage of all of their VA benefits, whether it's the disability compensation program, VA healthcare, GI bill, or VA home loan. That is a huge problem. And so uh, the, my point in all of this is we have to get better and get to the left of this while they're still on active duty. I think, you know, when all of a sudden somebody says, I'm getting out, immediately they are not part of the team anymore. In some cases, they're ostracized because they're getting out. But in others, they're like, oh, well, because we are so focused on the mission at hand. And when we say a service member for life, then we got to take care of those people as well. And when they choose to say, I'm getting out, we should say, thank you for your service. We're going to make sure we take care of you through this whole process so that you have a seamless transition in post-military life. You still have purpose. So the lack of purpose, in my opinion, is what's causing people to make radical decisions on what to do, why they end up homeless, and ultimately why they, you know, go towards things like suicide. There is a component that I interviewed a Canadian on the other side of the border about how they do it. And they actually like mandate like the last two to three weeks of their military service is time integrating with the VA. So before they even lose yeah. track, it's like a paid vacation to go get all your stuff done with the VA. And I've often thought that that would be something that's like the thread that's missing. Cause the other part is the v, like you mentioned, the VA can't even send you a pamphlet because they don't have your address <laughs> registered to where you live. Like let alone try to save your life. We can't even send you a pamphlet saying these are the services we offer in the area, which is something they re regularly do to my house a couple times a year. They can't yeah. do that. And it's, 
It's like if we were just to add that, like this stop loss right before the end, like we're going to pause you down, we're going to pay you, and we're going to send you to the local VA to get everything processed because you never know what needs to be documented because you don't know what's broken oftentimes, especially if you're like in a yeah. short four year enlistment where you maybe didn't have everything fully abused, but it's definitely abused where if you keep moving it, it's going to eventually start getting bad. You need that documentation done. Did you, was there, like what prevents getting ideas moving within that process? Cause I'm sure you sat at the top, but then also like your hands were tied and there's only so many things you can do. Like what prevents us from creating a better process there that like is at the middle of it besides Congress, maybe, which is maybe the answer to that question. Well, obviously congressional help goes a long way in getting after this, especially if they're putting funding to it. But I will tell you, you know, and I saw this all the time. There is a risk aversion, especially in leaders, to talking to anybody outside of the DOD. So I'm talking about anybody that, even if it's Department of Labor, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, if it's industry, there is a risk aversion to talking to anybody like that. We are There's such a fear that if you talk to somebody and all of a sudden they can quote you that you're speaking on their behalf and you might be a non-governmental entity, that all of a sudden now you're endorsing that entity. And so now anything that is not DOD related, you see leaders that will refuse to even entertain anything. And so that's why you see these things like uh, career skills bridges programs and things like that, where military leaders are hesitant to support because they think, okay, I'm going to let Joe go and learn how to be, you know, train on HVAC systems. Well, they think, well, Joe is going to go screw off and I don't know who this HVAC guy is and everything. Instead of educating themselves as a leader and understanding what we're trying to do with our separating or transitioning service members and giving them purpose, you know, it's leaders. And in the end, it's not so much that leaders don't care. It just doesn't get into their bandwidth of thinking, you know, and until it's, you know, too late or all of a sudden there's congressional oversight on it or there's something happened and now all of a sudden leaders are focused on, then all of a sudden it's a big deal with people, you know? So uh, what I hear in that is there's a truth that senior enlisted and enlisted staff NCOs and NCOs that they believe that they need to let go. Do you have any idea of how to articulate that truth? That's a lie in reality. Yeah, they, well, I hear it. I heard it all the time as the SEAC, you know, and now, you know, I'm a brand ambassador for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's uh, Hiring Our Heroes program, which, you know, we do career summits at camps, posts, and stations to give transitioning service members an opportunity to talk to industry and potentially get a job as they uh, are transitioning out. But, you know, when this is U.S. Chamber of Commerce, think of that. And we're an organization that represents that. Even trying to get on a military base like that, there are some senior enlisted leaders that think that I'm trying to sell them snake oil. You know, when what I'm trying to do is show them a way, it doesn't cost the government anything, but show them a way with a job summit on their base that will allow as many service members and military spouses that are looking for employment to be able to come and talk to people like Comcast. Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, all of these major corporations. And the number one 
uh, detractor on why troops don't know about that kind of stuff is senior leaders just kind of blow it off or they're just disinterested. And so really I think, really I think there's truth in that. They really give a bad example, but I've experienced it firsthand. There was a particular army base that I was originally invited to come speak at, but they recently, during the time between, between not signing a contract and pending a contract, they changed commands. And the new command's philosophy was, we're not going to worry about it until it punches his wife in the face. And it's the same kind of like, are you kidding me? Because it's it's like there's just a disconnect in the reality of what they want to try to get their ha- hands messy with. And that's probably a little bit of a good analogy, because as long as their hands are clean, they don't have to worry about any baggage. But life is messy. Family is messy. Like, And I've often talked about that if I was ever a commanding officer, I would go on to a base and the very first speech that I would give to the people I was commanding is my worst dad moment. I would go into the, the pits of my fatherhood stories and pull out my worst day because there is this inhuman feeling that we imply as a military uniform that prevents you feeling from like a human being as a dad, as a husband, that you have to be this different person and it creates a firewall. And we then we forget and we oftentimes like the Marine Corps bad joke but it's still true in many ways that if they wanted you to have a family they would have issued you one that even that joke signifies that family is different than life which it's not it's all part of the same thing and we spend so many millions of dollars within family services but we still don't spend millions of dollars training commanding officers and senior enlisted of how to integrate family conversations so people can actually feel safe opening up within their unit about a family problem before they punch their wife in the face yeah, I so too many times we take a reactive approach to this kind of stuff, as you just described. Oh, he punched his wife in the face. Now we've got a problem that we need to solve. Okay, when we should have a proactive approach. And what I mean about that is leaders should be engaged at all levels with the, the men and women in their in their charge and in their span of control. And as a leader, in order for those men and women to open up and be honest with you and then you've got to be genuine in your demeanor. You've got to be transparent in your approach. And then you've got to be, lead by example in everything you do. I used to have this phrase that I served at all levels. And when somebody was screwing up, I would say, come here. I love you so much. I'm going to chew your ass for screwing that up. If I didn't love you, I would let you continue to screw it up and end up failing. Okay. But because I love you, I'm going to take the time to show you how to do it right and make sure you understand how to do it right. But I would do that approach so people knew that when I was being critical of subordinates, it was because I wanted them to reach their untapped potential. I wanted them to be the best that they can be. And I want them to succeed. I'm treating them like my own children, you know, in terms of and and when you're, you know, trying to get people to reach that untapped potential and you're, you know, disciplining them and they're coaching them and everything that's born out of love. That's not born out of hate. And too many people think it's the other way around. So, you know, senior senior leaders, especially on the enlisted side, they got to get over themselves and understand that it's not about the rank you wear. It's the inspiration you provide to the men and women in your charge. And then you don't forget about them if they decide to say, hey, look, I did one tour four years. I want to get out. You ought to say, thank you for your service. What's your plan? How can we help you? Let's talk about a schedule here on what you're going to do. If And if it's a skills bridge program, let's talk about that. How can we help you to get through with that and everything? But too many times, 
And I've seen it in every one of the services. Oh, you want to leave, huh? You want to jump off the team. You want to be disloyal and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it just kills me when I hear that kind of talk out of leaders. And that's why we have the challenges we have where subordinates won't open up to their leaders because they're afraid that if they open up to them, they're going to hold it against them, you know? And uh, it, we got to get put a baseball on top of a tee for me. And I'm going to hit it here and see where it goes. Something yeah. that I've recently come into understanding is within PTSD and military service, is there isn't like a concrete career protection for someone that says they have PTSD that doesn't feel like a career ender. And yeah. it's something I never really spent much time thinking about, but a lot of the Civil Disabilities Act doesn't apply to the military. So you don't have those career protections to like prevent prevent your ability to have your career ended because you've said you've got some trauma from the things they've sent you to do. I'd like some help healing it. And the irony yeah. that really smacked me in the face here was the VA treats it as an eight-week treatment program to cure. Why don't we treat the same thing like a broken <laughs> leg that allows you to stay into service as PTSD if we know how to cure it? And I'm wondering, like, where have you seen that, like, that stigma? I can't talk about PTSD because it's a career ending. Have you seen that? Is there a right way and a wrong way to approach it? Or what, what, what do you have to kind of add to that? So that, this is a, a great topic. And it is the stigma exists all over the military at the tactical operational strategic level. OK, we, we will say we'll never hold it against you. But when someone says, I need help. Uh, in the behavioral pattern, automatically, the first thing they will, the, some leaders will think is, well, this person's got a compound fracture of their leg, they're out of the game, you know, or whatever. Um, when, what we should be saying, how do I continue to support this person, you know, to get through this, get the treatment they need, so that they can still be a valued member of the team. And I'll even give you a personal example, uh, Ben. So here I am, I served 38 years. I'm, I'm one year out from retirement. I come home and I tell my wife, hey, hon, uh, we got to start thinking about retirement. We're a year out. We got to, you know, figure out what we're going to do, where we're going to go. And she goes, well, the first thing you need to do, I think you need to go see somebody. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, in a, in a year from now, this whole SEAC thing, this Washington, D.C. thing, this Pentagon thing, this all of this is going to be done and it's just going to be you and me. And I cannot live like this with you with all this anger that you have. And I thought, holy shit. So my wife gave me an ultimatum. And initially, I went to see a therapist, you know, to appease her. And I got in there with my therapist, and it felt like she was ripping my head open and she was reading my brain. She knew exactly what was going on with me, you know, repressed. Anxiety, like she hacked rage. the DOD and read all your secret plans on how to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, exactly. And uh, so even as from 30 years earlier from my combat parachute jump into Afghan or, or Panama, she laid it all out for me. And so initially I went to appease my wife, but when I got in there, it was like a drug. So after she diagnosed me with PTSD, I had to walk out of that office at the DiLorenzo Clinic in the Pentagon. And I had to make that 100-meter walk up to Secretary Jim Mattis's office and General Joe Dunford's office and tell them that I was in treatment for PTSD. I've done a lot of foot marches in my life, Ben, a lot of them. The longest walk I ever had to take was to go see those two gentlemen. 
And when I told Secretary Mattis, he said, his reaction was, okay, good. When are you going back to Yemen to tell me what's going on with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? And General Joe Dunford was just the same way. Hey, glad you're doing that. You know, do what you got to do. I had created the stigma in myself. And I thought my leaders, these two most revered leaders, you know, arguably in the history of our military, had, did not see it as, as an issue, you know, and it didn't change how they used me as their senior enlisted advisor. And so I think in some cases, there are leaders that truly will use that against people that say, I need help. But in other cases, I think we created ourselves. And in, in the end, if we are to eliminate this stigma, we just got to have people that are confident to go and, and say, I need help and go and get treatment and be open about it. And we got to have leaders that are empathetic about it. If Troxel had his way, the best sports leagues in the world make mental health a part of everything they do. You go in and get a physical examination, you're going to go see the mental health folks and everything. So in my opinion, everybody ought to be going to see some kind of specialist, uh, either behavioral health, mental health, or something like that, and make it a way of life in what we do in the military. And I think it'll go a long way to eliminate the stigma that is still strong and still exists in the force. That story will be the defining moment of this episode, I am positive, because if you have the balls that essentially have to harden to the point to walk the Department of Secretary of Defense and tell them, I might be broken, and the feeling that you're going to explode all over his office with anxiety, like the horror stories might come true. I might literally have this anxiety all over the wall, and this could be purple, and do that, and walk to that edge, and then realize it was all in my head at that point, like this story is the one that needs to be shared everywhere because yeah, that's the longest walk. And if you can do that walk, every other service member, no matter what kind of asshole he works for, I mean, you don't get kind of nicknames that he did as a secretary of defense without kind of having (laughs) that kind of stigma of like, this guy could either go either way and then having the courage to go in there either way. And then like, just trusting like, man, that is an amazing story because Every yeah, dad but, needs to hear that story. Yeah. Because I, I can only imagine it wasn't just about the therapy when you went in that session. You actually probably started to heal like at an exponential rate on the other side of that conversation. Like, absolutely. The, the, your firewall turned down and like you probably exponentially became more alive even because you weren't trying to like hide this story and you got to wear it right. on, your, on your sleeve like a tattoo. And you're like, I'm okay with that. And everybody else yeah. is okay with Man, that was, and I will tell you, it became, you know, what my one week, once a week, or if I was traveling once every two weeks or whatever it was, it became my oasis, Ben. It was that hour that I could go in and I wasn't the SEAC. You know, I I could be vulnerable. um, And and it helped me so much in terms of controlling anger and and being more effective. I tell this all the time, and I just wrote a foreword for a book called Peace After Combat. Uh, by author Dr. Tiffany Tajiri, who kind of combines psychology and spirituality uh, to treat veterans who have PTSD. And I talk about, and the foreword, I talk about how a simple trip to the grocery store is more, uh, you know, emotional to a veteran than walking a patrol in Iraq or Afghanistan, because you're going into an environment 
where it's chaotic. People are all over the place. Um, you walk down an aisle, you got shelves that are um, blocking your peripheral vision. There's only one way in and one way out. So you know there's a fatal funnel right there. All the things that you associated with combat are there. And then somebody blocks the aisle with their shopping cart instead of okay, this person is just being inconsiderate. That's a blocking obstacle to impede my movement and everything. And all of a sudden, you have to get to a place where uh, a point, an advantage point where you can see everybody and observe everybody because you're in fear. And you're like that until you get through, you get your groceries and you get out the door and everything. That's what people have to understand, that veterans deal with that kind of stuff every day. And so that's why treatment is the best option. Because I will tell you, the grocery store was one of my, it was a deliberate operation for me to go to the grocery store, even with my wife. And being in therapy, and I've been in therapy now going on three years, um, it's helped me to be able to walk in there, be able to do some breathing techniques and everything, and understand. And I would even ask you a question, Ben, you've been out for a little bit. Do you, when you go into a restaurant, do you make sure you know where the entry and exits are of those restaurants? I am not always observant of that, but I am definitely cognizant of what's going on around me as far as like people watching the different conversations where like where are the crowds like there is. Yeah. And I didn't even see combat like that component of training is still inside me. But this is a normal reaction to the abnormal circumstances we've ever tr- we've, we've either trained for or we've experienced in combat. And that's it. We have to say that's OK. There's nothing wrong with you. If you're in a in a restaurant, you know, don't get me wrong. You know, there are there are people that come into restaurants and have, you know, shot the place up and stuff. But you have a ninety nine point nine percent chance that if you go to a restaurant with your family, it's not going to be a violent event. It's going to be. But still, when we go in there. We want to we hear that we're cognizant of the people are sitting around us like my wife and I went to a restaurant yesterday. We had a party of six people that went into a booth behind us. And I was very cognizant one because I couldn't see them, but I wanted to hear what they were saying. You know, did I think these six people were going to, you know, do some kind of terrorist attack? No, no, but through our training, through our experiences, the radar goes up and we are hyper vigilant when we come to that kind of stuff, you know, and that's okay. And that's what people have to learn uh, and, and veterans have to learn that's what going to therapy and what PTSD is all about. It's normal reactions to the abnormal shit we've been through or that we've trained for. And going to see a therapist is a way of dealing with this kind of stuff. And it's okay. That's the message that has to be sent. I'll give an opposite kind of a story, but it's a similar kind of moment. So it's up in Camp Pendleton in the infantry training that they send to every Marine to afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And it's the very first time we are doing a, he up, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down exercise with live ammo. So it's the very first time, like you're moving, you're firing down range at the same time versus all the safety mechanisms of being stationary with right ammo. And I messed it up to the point where like, I wasn't paying attention to my muzzle. And I remember getting my ass chewed in that moment. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, I haven't even been a Marine for a few months now. And I already almost killed someone as they said to me. That moment of I'm always going to fuck it up, that plagued me for yeah. a long time even. So, I mean, there yeah, yeah. are so many moments where like that moment kind of was like, what kind of freaking Marine are you going to be if you can't even do this simple exercise? 
and you're always going to be the guy that can't do the things the good Marines can like that thought yeah. in itself created triggers because everything I could do was kind of like, well, I'm just going to mess up that moment with the live fire and get yelled at again. Like it's going to be a lot simpler even than going to combat and losing your best friend. And this is it's the simple stuff. Sometimes it can just be the stuff that trips you up every day from even finding a new purpose. There can be a story Absolutely. of failure in your training that prevents you from going to try new things just like mine. I mean, Luckily, I tried new things and I worked through it. And I'm doing crazy things now, but there's a world where a different version of me would have stayed stagnant and I would have did ordinary things everybody else did because what if I decide to do what I always wanted to do and mess it up like I did way back in infantry training? So that's, that's a great point. It doesn't necessarily have to be combat or military experiences. Think of this, someone walking through a crosswalk and someone driving down the road, not paying attention, almost runs them over while they're in a crosswalk and they have the right of way. For there on out further, that person is going to be extra cautious going through a crosswalk because even though this was probably an anomaly and it was one person that was an idiot and wasn't paying attention, now they will think everybody is going to be like that. And every time they get to a crosswalk, they are going to be extra cautious because. The minute they see those lines in the crosswalk and traffic and everything, it's going to be like, I'm not going to, you know, I survived it once where the person didn't hit me. But, you know, you never forget about those kinds of incidences. And because you now have this stigma associated with a crosswalk, it's just a normal reaction to the abnormal event that caused that. And your brain, every time you see something like that, is going to send a signal to say, we got to be extra careful here. And that's what people have to understand, not, not the veteran or the person that this significant emotional event happened to. They have to understand that that's a normal reaction to the abnormal circumstances, and it's going to be there, and you have to continue to focus on how to deal with it. But also the people who would be critical of that person and saying, just get over it. You know, like I was talking about earlier when with the vets that served in Afghanistan, and I hear so many people that have zero skin in the game saying, just get over it. No, it doesn't work that way, okay? And anybody that is a leader or understands that will be empathetic to that kind of you know behavior in people, and they will understand, and they won't hold it against them. And the more we do that, we won't have these stigmas associated with seeking behavioral or mental health. And that's one of the things that I am truly focused on now is to bring normalcy to being in treatment. I love that. And it reminds me of something I recently learned as well with uh, Dr. Pamela Hall and her episode. She shared, because we were time traveling back of like, why didn't more generations, because like World War II, I would, they, would, they had more reason to have PTSD. The, the conditions, the length, like it was just worse. And yet there weren't many stories that I remember. Most of them just shut down. But for the most part, they still ended up living normal lives. And we were talking about all these different moments in time. And she took us back all the way to like American Indians. And what American Indians would do when they all went to war was the moment they came home, there was these shared story experiences that the entire tribe understood what the sacrifice that the men did to go fight the neighboring tribe and came home. And World War II and World War I was the first outside the border war where Americans really didn't have to face the carnage of war. And so we kind of got disconnected from it. And then all the different wars since then have also been away from our borders. And so certain parts of America get to enjoy life like always, and certain people go off and fight those wars. 
but there is not that shared story experience and veterans come home and we're told to be normal and yet there's still something we need to share but we don't have these places to share it and there was um tom hanks did a movie newsday on netflix and it's essentially back in like the 1800s he would travel around to different parts of the midwest reading the news that he collected from different parts because they didn't have newspapers traveling around and he just went there and shared the news and i was thinking like one thing we're really also missing as from the veteran experience we're missing just this common place to share our stories and podcasting is doing it but we need it on a much grander scale just tip the scales for the american society not to understand the carnage of war but just hear whatever a veteran story is and to let them know that like this is something we all need to share and it's almost that like the civilians think we should be normal and they get upset when we're not well we're, we've seen things we're, we are normal but we need to share and express who we are because you just can't undo something you've learned or what you've experienced and it's that friction it kind of just creates a stigma that we've been talking about that gets us into these crappy thoughts, which gets us into a corner, which gets us into this world where we think the world's better without us. And then we pull the plug when really all we did was want to be seen, heard and understood in a world that seems to want to reject us more than understand us. You know, my, I think my wife said it best, Ben. Um, she said, you know, she will talk about, you know, me and my military experience. She goes, he's not the man that I married. He's different but I still married him. I still love him. And I'm going to be there for him, even though he's not the same man that I married. You know, I mean, we've been married 38 years and, uh, I was a young private when we got married in 83 and, and here we are still today, you know, five combat tours later, 38 years of military service, four years in the Pentagon. And so the point is, I may not be the same man that I was that she married in the first years of our marriage, but she, as a spouse, has adapted to the changes that have happened to me because of combat and military service. And in the end, were it not for her giving me that ultimatum, um, I would have never been able to see myself and figure out that therapy was the best thing for me. And to this day, it is still the best thing that I look forward to because. As I said before, that's my oasis to recharge my batteries, talk about some things I might have been through, you know, some events that I had to deal with and be able to go out and get back and be a, a better veteran, a better dang uh, business owner, uh, a better employee, but most importantly, a better husband, father and grandfather. So going back a little bit, I want to time travel. I want to go back into like your first four years of enlistment before you were even probably drinking the Kool-Aid they were selling before you probably thought like, I'm just going to be a four year wonder. What were some of the things that you could, if you could go back in time travel and like leave on a sticky size, no piece of advice, what would that John have really needed to know now that he's had the threat of 38 years military service that that guy back then that was probably thought he had the world by the hand didn't really now looking back, probably what were some of those lies that you needed to kind of kill back then if you could. Well, you, you just hit it on the head. I, I, I thought I had the world by the hand. When I joined the military, uh, you know, my uh, boot camp and my uh, advanced training was, you know, I, I took to it pretty good. And it was pretty, I wouldn't say it was easy, but, you know, I didn't have any challenges. There was no time that I think, man, I'm not going to make it. And then when I 
started serving in my units, you know, basically, you know the deal. If you were motivated, you showed up to work on time, you did what you were told to, and you strive to be better at everything you did, you were going to move up. And it was kind of easy for me. And I think the advice I would give is because all of a sudden that as it came natural to me being a soldier, it boosted my confidence. And then it became overconfidence. And at a certain point, it became cocky. I was part of that E4 mafia that thought that, you know, if, if we were in charge, we'd have this MF or straight, you know. So the I think just advice give I, me the keys to the bus. <laughs> Absolutely. So what I think what I would say to myself in the sticky note would say, take every opportunity to keep your mouth shut and listen and learn, you know. And so I now I focus on things like this when people want to have an opinion. Before you give an opinion, make sure you read, make sure you learn, make sure you understand, then you can opine. Some people will give their opinion and it's an uninformed opinion or it's an opinion formed off of feelings or media instead of let me read and learn about this. Let me understand the subject and then I'll take the opportunity to give my opinion. And so that's the kind of advice I would give to myself back then, because I was, you know, the typical and you know, the deal, the E4 mafia, we rule the world. And uh, one event would happen. I'd be like, ah, this shit screwed up. If I was in charge, I'd have this straight. I was one of those guys that had the toughest job on the planet. I was a corporal fire team leader. And I was secretary of defense at the same time. You know, so, like, I, like you said, all I need is the keys to the bus and I'll have this whole department of defense straight, you know? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Clint Eastwood from Heartbreak Ridge, where he's just like, <laughs> this place is a walking clusterfuck. And, if I need, <laughs> and this guy needs to get the hell out of here because I know what I'm doing and you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you, brother. Yeah. What about as a dad? What would you have had to learn? Um, so. I only raised boys. I had three sons. They are all grown up. They all live around me and my wife out here at Lakewood, Washington. So we see them all the time, see our grandchildren all the time. But because I didn't raise daughters, um, I, when I would leave work as that squad leader, platoon sergeant, first sergeant, sergeant major, I did not have to change uh Lisa, in my opinion, I did not have to change my leadership style or approach to my sons. And I think um, if I could go back, I would have a little bit more empathy on some of the mistakes my sons made. Because I was that dad that, you know, if my oldest son, who was a fullback playing Pop Warner football, and if I didn't think his effort was worthy, he was doing suicides when we got home in the front yard, you know. Or the same with my middle son. If if he wasn't the best catcher, if he made an error or something, uh, he was going to pay for that with doing laps around the block. And same with my youngest son in football. I think I would have had a little bit more empathy, uh, and and uh, you know, and slow down a little bit and understand that mistakes were made. I think if I would have had a daughter, it probably would have changed me. It would have softened bit. you up. Yeah, it would have softened me up because now. I have two grandsons and two granddaughters and both of my granddaughters have me right here around their dang finger. And, uh, you know, in, in, in grandpa's eyes, they can do no wrong. You know? So, um, but yeah, I would just say, Hey, be a little bit more 
sympathetic and empathetic in terms of uh, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, what my sons were doing and, and their performance and stuff like that. Now, having said all of that, uh, all three of them are doing well, you know, and they uh, have their own careers and their families and everything. So it, it might not have been that bad, but the advice I would have given to as a younger dad was slow down, take it easy, understand a little bit more. What I hear in that is a little bit tying it back full circle to your advice when you're talking about leading as a staff NCO of yelling at them is how you show love to a young boy. That's not the first feeling that they get when dad's right like that. And that love is something you still have to add in versus it's an assumption as an adult and in the military. But as an, as a boy, I guess I have one boy and two girls. And so for me raising my boy, I know that the, there's a fine line between making sure that he knows that I'm proud of him, of who he's becoming. And it's the results or not the results, but the effort that he puts in, not the results that makes him proud. Yeah. It makes me proud and knowing that he's loved no matter what he does, but then also setting those boundaries so that, you know, you can keep him pushing. Like that is the fine line that I know a lot of military dads get stuck on because we do just come home in the same mode. But at the same time, I've interviewed sons of military dads and they often say like, my dad never showed a drop of emotion around me. And that was kind of what I thought they needed to be when men can experience all the wide range of emotions, just not Absolutely. the ones that the stoic men bring home that says my steals are, my balls are steel and I don't show anything. And this is how all men need to be like. That is also what leads to that, that um, stigma that we can't ask for help because if we're never meant shown vulnerability and your father is a good example of where that could first show up of like, yeah, I saw my dad be humble enough to say, I didn't know the right answers today or that I messed up today. And I came back for an apology. So I really appreciate that yeah. advice. Cause that's advice that every dad needs to hear. I agree. I will tell you though, I love being a grandfather now because uh, you know, if the grandkids start acting up um, even after I've spoiled them and I've given them all kinds of candy and they're all fired up. And if they start acting up, I can tell my sons, Hey, Come get them. They're, they're yours. All right. So, so I can love them. I can shower them with attention. And, and they uh, come with a light switch. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, this is the other thing I've learned about being a grandfather is when you've given all of your love to your children and they're grown up and they move out of your house and you think that you've given all the love you can, along come the grandchildren and it kind of repeats itself, albeit at a different level because you're one level removed from them. But still, as a grandparent, you have a role in their development and, you know, how they can grow up and everything. And that's one thing my wife and I are focused on is, you know, taking care of our grandchildren so that when they become adults, they can have a, a prosperous life as well. And it's also kind of connected to when you become colleagues, like I've heard it said, yeah. like when your kids are older, your colleagues, you can compare notes, you can say what different things are going on. And it's those moments that you can really kind of appreciate what stuck, what worked. And you can be like, this is what I was talking about all those years. Like you can just kind of like yeah. those ironies, like remember when you were nine and I tried saying different things, that was that moment that I was talking about now that you've seen it come true <laughs> with your own kids. Yeah, Absolutely. So there's one question that I kind of want to go back to. So you've got all of these different stories. You've got all this different wisdom and you've got 38 years kind of of experience of all the different things. What is it on the other side of transition that you're kind of leading all this up to? Cause you've kind of 
like almost entered into this whole new season of your life as being like a, and it's hard to live up to the measure, but like an earlier gunnery sergeant, Arlie Ermey, like just going out there, firing up the troops, firing up motivation and making sure that people can understand the things that you didn't do right. But then making sure that you can just keep the the kind of mission going. So tell us a bit about like what you're leading up to now. Yeah. So I thought, so, you know, having spent 38 years in this institution, I didn't, I was a little, you know, apprehensive about what I was going to do when I got out, you know, and, um, but then when I went through my transport and I started talking to, uh, people in corporate America, I started getting fired up and motivated. And I thought I can compete out here. And so when I transitioned and I started my own consulting firm and I started signing contracts with these companies, I was doing uh, on the job learning, you know, in how to be an entrepreneur, but how to be a member of corporate America and everything. But it continued to fuel me, you know, to, hey, I want to do some good things. And then I think there's two types of retirees. There's enablers and there's agitators. The agitators are the guys that will call up the base senior enlisted and say, hey, why the hell are you charging more for, you know, a Popeye's meal on base than off base or Hey, you know, I came through the gate and the kid that checked my retiree ID card didn't address me as sergeant major or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted to be an enabler and I wanted to give back to the institution that gave me so much and to the current men and women in uniform. And I thought my days of visiting troops and everything were going to be over when I retired, but I travel as much now and engage as much with the troops as I did when I was the SEAC. And so my message is this, I'm not the SEAC anymore and I'm not on active duty. I am not gonna be lost in my museum and speak like I'm the SEAC. I come in and that's why you know I say all the time, I don't speak on behalf of the DOD or the current SEAC. I'm gonna give you John Wayne Troxell's opinion and that uh, that opinion that I'm giving and the advice I'm giving and the experience I'm giving has become infectious with the troops and leaders out there. So they continually ask me back. And in the past year, year and a half since I've retired, I've done 25 base visits, 12 or yeah, well, 26 now, 13 uh, Air Force, nine Army, three Marine and uh, one Coast Guard. and so. Um, I see it as my role to give back. And if I can give a piece of advice to a senior enlisted leader or a junior uh, trooper that will help them on the way, or if I can inspire them to go out and want to reach their untapped potential, then I'll continue to do that. You know, and uh, and so I tell the story all the time. I went to speak at this Irish Veteran Association, uh, St. Patty's Day celebration. Um, just the title alone can tell you that this is uh, probably going to be a spirited, um, you know, boisterous uh, crowd. So I went there and it's nine o'clock in the morning and I'm supposed to speak and I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, great power competition, responding to a crisis, conflict and all this stuff. And all of these Irishmen and their wives were outside the hall where the event was going to be at. And every one of them had a pint 
a beer in their hand and a shot of Jameson at nine o'clock in the morning. So I said, speech out the window. I'm just going to get in there and do my surrender or die speech. Fire them up after a shot of Jameson. I didn't have one. I, I was like, uh, <laughs> hey, I'll get it afterwards. But so anyways, I just went in there and gave a very inspirational talk about, you know, ISIS has two options. They can surrender or die. And, you know, in the end, if they don't surrender, then we're going to sh- b- drop bombs on them, shoot them in the face or beat them to death with our entrenching tools. And it was all said and done. And these two Irish vets came up to me. One was a, with a walker and one with a cane. They had to be late 70s, early 80s. And they said, you got us so fired up. We're just going to go out go downtown and tear some shit up. We don't know what we're going to tear up, but we're going to tear some shit up. So I said, hey, look, okay, don't do not do that. My point in all of this is uh, I'm kind of on a journey still that I want to help uh, our military, our families, and our veterans. And if given an inspirational speech like that fires people up to go want to go out and do good things or want to go out and take care of themselves and their family, I'll continue to do it. And that's what gives me joy now is being able to do that kind of stuff and give back to the institution and the community that has given me so much and given my family so much. What I hear in that fact that you've been, you served for 38 years, only in the last year did your wife give you the ultimatum and saying, you need to armor down before this thing's over. Cause we're not going to make it on the other side. Now, knowing what you're doing, firing people up with your stories and almost probably bringing the full John Troxel to the to the stage every time versus this one that was hiding that you might not have had it all together. It's almost like this 38 year lesson that you had to learn through a lot of time and commitment, but to armor down and in a lot of ways, but not with the depth that you have, your almost universal ability to be a tool and a mechanism to be a conduit for so many different stories and veterans. Like it was like a 38 year training mission where you trained to learn all these different depths of how the world works and these lessons from all these different people. And now you're kind of stepping into this lesson that the universe kept trying to teach you. And maybe you could have shortcutted it at 30 and 26 and all the different times had your wife given you an ultimatum. You've been like, honey, why don't you do this earlier? I could have maybe shortcutted it here and we could have gotten out of 26 versus 38. Like, I feel like this is almost all your life purpose coming to fruition here of learning that lesson of armor down so you can step into a higher functioning of helping others. Yeah. And what is not clouding my uh, focus now is politics in Washington, D.C. from being there for four years, bureaucracy in the Pentagon and being held to kind of talking points and themes and messages that are DOD approved. Now I my wings can spread. I can give my opinion. And some people will look at that as if you give your opinion on something and it's critical of the administration or it might be critical of the DOD that you're being disloyal. I disagree with that. As a United States citizen with First Amendment rights, we ought to be able to criticize those who are in power and say, I'm not happy with the direction they're going. Like I mentioned earlier with President Biden, I am absolutely disappointed with the abrupt, undisciplined, disorderly withdrawal he called for from Afghanistan. It doesn't mean I hate the man. It doesn't mean I'm wishing ill will on him. I am just disappointed in him. And some people will say, because you were the SEAC, that I should still tow the company line and just say, yep, whatever's going on, I support it, you know, 
it doesn't work that way. And that's why I'm so much more happy now is that I can have my opinion. It's accepted by the troops or whoever I'm talking to. And I, I don't have to carry around any baggage with me of, did I say the right thing? Or did I get out of line? Am I going to hurt the feelings of this person? Or is this person going to be calling me saying, hey, man, you know, what are you talking about or whatever? It, <clears throat> I don't have to worry about any of that. I, and, and that has made me uh, so much more comfortable, less anxiety. And, and again, like I said before, I'm a, I'm a better husband, a better father and a better grandfather from it, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm living life and I'm enjoying it. And, uh, and I'm still able to make a difference. And so that's what, uh, fuels me now. And that almost is the perfect ending of what every veteran has the opportunity on the other side of that service that whether, I mean, it allows veterans to run for Congress and extrapolate yes. even bigger opinions of how the country is supposed to work and what they did when they were serving their country. Like military service to me is just this massive exercise in depth. And the veterans that don't reveal themselves, I mean, even to the, their kids, the kids are at your funeral and they learn a great story from a friend that they never heard from your, your mouth directly. And they're really sad that you never shared it. Like your kids shouldn't have to wait for your funeral to learn who dad really was. And that depth is what we like. We are 18 million veterans have that we don't have. And so, man, I'm just really appreciative of what you're out there doing. I'm really appreciative for you sharing your story of the longest walk to Secretary of Defense Mattis's office. Because, man, like I said, I think that will be the defining moment of this podcast. And I think just a beacon of hope, like a lighthouse, that if that man can walk, I can walk anything lesser than that, because that would be the hardest walk of, of all, almost. Like, man, that was just uh, really opening. So I really appreciate you sharing your heart today, John, and coming on the podcast. And our friendship is just beginning, but I'm really excited where both of our stories are going, because we're both trying to take the depth of what we've learned and help other people out there. So Man, I'm just really excited to know you and having you on the podcast today. Hey, Ben, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for your service to your country and what you do now, brother. And uh, whatever help you need on anything, brother, I'm in the bullpen. All you got to do is say, I want the right-hander and, and I'm there to help you, man. Well, I appreciate it, John. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to check out that Bark promotion at militaryveterandad forward slash bark to get your 10% off and getting internet monitoring for your kids' devices to be able to see what's going on. My big takeaway this episode is that if John can take that longest walk, we all can do what we need to do to get through our PTSD. Whatever that moment is, whatever that break moment is, whether it was his wife, like it was for John or in your life, might be losing your job over a situation at work maybe, or your marriage being on the fritz or on the way out, whatever it may be, if John can walk the longest walk to the Secretary of Defense's office and say, I'm going to seek therapy for PTSD, we, no matter whether you're active or veteran, should have the courage to be able to go on our own walk, to go on our own journey to get help. We've been doing this podcast for 131 episodes now. I hope through all of these episodes, courage has been something that I've instilled within every episode, that as a dad, the stakes have never been higher for what we have to lose, but what we can gain, what we can truly gain if we allow ourselves to open ourselves back up 
to unpack all of these things that we no longer talk about. When we were way back when we interviewed Virginia Cruz, there was this accordion effect where she talked about the more and more things you don't deal with, the shorter depth the accordion can open and close, which is your experience of life. So the more that you're closing yourself down, the very little air can get into the accordion to actually experience any of the wide sway of emotions. It is time to get that accordion going to the full spectrum of emotions to get yourself to experience the full peaks of life, but get yourself to where you can also handle the valleys. Life is a roller coaster. Within my coaching, I always talk to dads about how it's about how do you show up as yourself in the peaks and the valleys, and you're still you, and you don't attach your meaning to the peak or the valley, and you let yourself ride the roller coaster from peak to valley, and it's just the experience of life, and you know who you are. Guys, it is time to take that walk. It is time to come home to a life that you know is true on the inside, but that you haven't been able to get to that point to move on the outside. That is all for this episode today. I will be back again with you guys on Friday. It feels good to be back in the microphone, back into a regular schedule. We are just getting started with this whole new world of me being able to do this full time. Thank you guys again. We'll talk soon.